This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to Talking Pop Health. My name is Eric Tower, an attorney at Thompson Coburn. Today, I'm elated to have our first ever repeat guest, Hector Torres from Focal Point. And we're going to be talking about the outlook for 2022 uh, and some recent developments affecting pop health and healthcare generally. Uh, with that, I'm going to leave it to Hector here to introduce himself and give a little background. Thank you, Eric. Great pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, my name is Hector Torres. I'm a managing director, and I have the pleasure of co-leading the healthcare investment banking practice at Focal Point Partners, uh, a diversified global investment banking enterprise uh, with a strategic focus on the healthcare industry. So, Hector, I want to I want to get to the elephant in the room right up front, if I can. Um, President Biden gave his State of the Union speech a few days ago, and Frankly, he took a whack at private equity in healthcare. Uh, it was focused on the nursing home industry, and he made a lot of strong statements about private equity and the damage uh, he feels that it's doing to the industry. Um, and I just wanted you to give a few thoughts about what you think about that. Yeah, um, you know, sort of mixed emotions. <laughs> Certainly, uh, there, there, there are valid points to the, the president's speech. But look, private equity um, is, is really sort of a, a naming convention for institutional capital, right? And institutional capital is seeking return on investment and yield, and is seeking to deploy capital to seek that yield in segments of the economy that are ripe for consolidation or improvement. Healthcare happens to be extremely inefficient, and segments such as nursing home, home health, and, and other categories that in the last decade have really become uh, uh, an air, areas of focus for private equity um, are, are such because they're, they're ripe for capital infusion in order to address and, and rectify all the inefficiencies in those markets. Now, does it academically work that way every singular time? The answer is no, right? And um, private, we always tell our clients that are considering private equity as a potential partner that um, private equity isn't for everyone and everything. Um, it tends to be very popular these days, uh, and they are driving a lot of the M&A market activity. But um, it really comes down to what is that healthcare organization's goal? What is their what are their strategic objectives, and how could private equity potentially help accelerate, catalyze, or influence in a positive way the attainment of those goals? But if the healthcare industry was absolutely as efficient as, say, the airline industry, which, you know, 100 years ago, there were, you know, at least 50 airlines. Today, there are only a handful, right? Because it's completely consolidated and arguably become much more efficient than it was 100 years ago. If that was the case in the healthcare industry, you wouldn't see the prevalence of private equity seeking opportunities to um, make money from creating efficiencies and economies of scale within healthcare. So my, my own perspective is, you, you know, he might be gravitating or, or focusing on a few bad actors. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
we haven't discussed this. I haven't discussed it on this podcast before, but I've, I've done nursing home roll-up work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was turnarounds. And the facilities that my client was acquiring were distressed. And they were distressed for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, when they went in, they had a lot of stuff they had to fix. And I even had the joy of state regulators in many states saying, tell your client not to bother to buy this place because we want to shut it down anyway. Mm. When you're coming into some of these places and someone's already made up their mind that you're a bad actor, it's real easy not to change your mind and to, to go back to what you already think you know. And you, you, know, you then fail to notice the improvement, the turnaround. You know, the fact is the nursing home industry is a low-wage industry. Uh, the staff often aren't really happy, and mm-hmm. I don't know very many people who want to be in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. So, but, but let's go a little out of the nursing home industry and look at private equity generally. Now, you know, I read modern healthcare occasionally when the articles land on my desk. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, I don't think it has a lot to say, but, you know, it's sort of a gossip mag for, uh, for the health systems. Mm-hmm. But they're constantly whacking it at private equity. Yeah. Um, when we look at the service line private equity that we're starting to see, that we've seen for a while now, I guess, you know, there's no doubt that it's shaking up the health systems and it's shaking up the status quo. Um, do you have the perception that that is something that's good for everyone? Or do you think that this is something that's undermining how healthcare is being delivered? It's a great question. And it's, it's frankly a question that a lot of our our clients ask. They say, you know, is, is private equity good, bad? Is is it everything we hear and read about? The reality is it's it's not unlike any industry or any service category. Uh, you have variability among the players, right? And the variability is in terms of levels of sophistication, understanding, and um, overall behavior, right? Are there bad apples? Sure. I mean, there are bad apples in every aspect of life and every industry of the economy. But what we find is there is a prevalence and a predominance, at least in the last 10 years, of private equity firms that are very sophisticated in their understanding of the healthcare dynamics and landscape today. But more importantly, I think, very attuned to the evolution of the healthcare ecosystem. And we like to think of those private equity investors as thesis-driven. They really not only understand the current state of the environment for healthcare, but they understand where that proverbial puck is is going to be versus where it is today. And those we find to be the the most sophisticated and the most in alignment with healthcare providers in particular, but all constituencies across the healthcare continuum in, in general. And once those groups started to really realize and post up big wins and show very early success, then you saw early mover private equity firms say, hey, wait a minute, there's something here in dermatology. Maybe we should do that. Now, dermatology, you know, there's over 50 plus private equity backed platforms. That is what's driving a lot of the activity and the investment from the private equity community in segments today, like urology, like musculoskeletal care, uh, like uh, otolaryngology and other segments. So it's a very, very systematic shift in the paradigm today. Yeah, so 25 years ago, when I was doing some of this stuff, it, it was reimbursement driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I think for a lot of the private equity now, the ones that are likely to be successful, 
they're the ones who are adapting to the reimbursement models that, that are coming or that are in front of them and other people have been slow to react. Mm-hmm. By the same token, how do you respond to say a health system who says, you know, you're, you're hollowing us out. You know, you're taking business that we could be doing and you're flipping it to for profit and that's harming communities. Honestly, it's not singularly coming from the private equity community in terms of that approach and in terms of the health system's response. I think that the health system, unfortunately, is is facing that on a variety of fronts. I mean, you have Optum Care, which is now the largest employer of physicians in the United States. I mean, private equity, I don't want to say that they take a more passive approach because by definition, they're not a passive investor, but private equity is much more attuned and open to saying rather than have a negative or a, or 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 a, a an adversarial dynamic with the local or regional health system if there are ways to partner joint ventures even PSA arrangements or other ways uh, private equity is saying look we're going to we're going to grow our footprint we're going to grow our ambulatory surgery footprint we're going to invest in ancillaries we're going to invest in data analytics and IT infrastructure to enable value-based care. But if we can do that in partnership with the hospital and the health system, we're game. I think one of the things that, that I find most interesting is the proposition that private equity gives the physicians. So what they say is, hey, you're not going to be just a referral source. We're going to build our model around you and your patients, mm-hmm. and we're going to do everything we can with those two constituencies in mind. We're gonna make money, but we're gonna do it in a way that is not turning you into just a cog in a machine. Yeah. And I think that resonates with a lot of doctors. It resonates supremely. And the other thing uh, that can be a little bit of a, a misnomer, there's always a negative fantasy around, is someone in New York City gonna be telling me in Phoenix, Arizona, how to practice medicine? And the reality is most states you can't by law, right? Uh, me as a private equity investor, I can't tell the physician how to execute clinical protocols. That autonomy, that clinical governance and autonomy typically uh, lies 100% on the side of the physician. So, so now you have the same level of clinical autonomy that you had before you partnered with private equity. But, you know, if depending on the structure of the transaction, in partnership with private equity, you've monetized uh, a, a significant portion of the value of your practice at a premium value. Um, and now you have a majority equity partner that has access to a fortitude of capital. And if it's the right partner, has a vision for what are the immediate, intermediate, and longer-term growth opportunities that we want to pursue in partnership. So I don't ever talk law in these podcasts, but I just want to note that there is a court case in California now Mm-hmm. challenging the models that we commonly see in private equity. Meaning uh, the friendly PC model. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm watching that because it would turn. It would turn the whole industry on its head. Yeah. And, but I don't think it's fair for people to kind of say, well, we want doctors to own the business, but they're really just tools for these evil private equity people in this black box. Right. Exactly. That's to me a little ludicrous, but. We'll see what the court thinks. My yeah. opinion doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. What are, your, what are some uh, evolving models that you're seeing? So, you know, I could tell you a, a couple observations. One thing, people call up and they say, hey, we want to do a roll-up. 
And I say, what's your model? And it's the old physician practice management, the PPM model. Yeah. We're going to provide back office and negotiate yeah. better agreements. And those are people I don't, I don't really um, put a lot of effort into talking with because that didn't work so well. And I don't see why it would work well now. Um, then, of course, we've got some of these other models that are taking advantage of value-based care. Um, what, are, what are you seeing and how are these, how are these people approaching their partnership process? I would say the current market environment definitely still has a very high degree of optionality um, sitting from the physician group or, or any healthcare services entity that's considering some sort of a sale process, right? Whether it's selling a minority interest, a majority interest, or the whole thing, um, without, without a doubt. Um, there's a direct correlation between the success of any partnership and the level of integration of that partnership post-transaction. Meaning, to your point uh, regarding the evolution uh, and application to today, those deals didn't work because those those practices were really loose confederacies, right? Yeah. Of physician groups that on paper said, hey, we're going to get the benefits and all the synergies of being part of a larger national enterprise but we're not really going to integrate at the local, regional, or national level in any way, shape, or form. You're not going to get the benefit of becoming part of a larger enterprise under that model. We're seeing it today with models that have a very similar architecture and structure. And the physicians sort of call us and say, three years into this, we're not getting any benefit. You know, and, and we... we we sort of feel like this rudderless ship uh, sort of left astray. Uh, yeah, are we getting a little bit of pickup on our operating expenses and our group purchasing and, and some of those minor operating expense synergies? Yeah, sure, yes. But beyond that, there's really no benefit. Um, I, I, I don't wanna say uh, carte blanche, it never works out. Um, there are a few models that we've seen in that regard that, that have had some success. You have to integrate clinical, financial, operation and strategically, right? All those elements have to be um, focused in on thoughtfully uh, in order to, to really get the benefits of a, of a partnership. Well, if you're going to do value-based care. Oh, without a doubt. Then you, I mean, that's without an absolute necessity. Without a doubt. All, all of the cables need to be plugged in and they all need to be coming in and bringing in information um, centrally, right? In order for a value-based uh, model to, 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 to actually effectuate. So when you're doing this, and I'm, I'm going to emphasize, I view you as being more on the PE side. Um, but it's important to partner with, with the systems. Mm -hmm. And I mean, certainly you can't, you can't go it alone without them in many instances. What sort of models are you using or, or approaching or um, examining in how you're going to partner with systems? A lot of the hospitals... I think in the last decade have realized that when a potential physician group that is in some way, shape or form affiliated, but not necessarily employed by the system approaches the system, they approach them in a, in a variety of ways, but it's typically one of one, one of several, Hey, we've been approached by private equity. We think the model's compelling. Can you do something similar? Because we we've had a longstanding relationship with you. Um, or, a derivative of that is, okay, hospital, Mr. Hospital and Health System, uh, you want us to become more integrated with you. Uh, we explored private equity. It had attributes, but at the end of the day, we didn't think it was a good fit. 
but how can you assimilate more to that model versus the the legacy models that the hospital has deployed historically, which is very simple. Become an employee, uh, we'll pay you know some fair market value purchase price for the value of your enterprise, but it always pales in comparison to a, to a, a for-profit you know, aggregator like private equity. What we've seen, and really more so in the last five years, is the hospitals being a lot more thoughtful and actually deploying and offering physician entities PE-like models, right? Whereby they recapitalize on a majority basis the existing physician enterprise but allow the owners, the physicians of that entity to um, roll over some form of minority equity ownership. So they have that proverbial skin in the game and upside. Now, there are a lot of variances because the hospital and the health system is not an investor. They're not seeking to aggressively invest and grow and not working within a very finite time period like private equity. So there are very different nuances, but they have been a little bit more forward thinking is it a problem that there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? It's the biggest problem. It's the biggest problem, right? The, a lot of the virtue of a private equity invest, investor coming in is the thought process of, hey, I can monetize the majority of the equity value in my practice today, roll over a significant amount of that, 25, 35%, whatever that is. And in the next two to three years, our private equity partner is going to invest, grow, and and present to the market at the end of their investment horizon an entity that is much more valuable. And the physicians are able to realize that second bite at the apple or that second liquidity event. And if done right, and we've witnessed this with our clients, most of the time, that second liquidity event can make the first one almost pale in comparison. Um, So that's, that's really one of the key appeals and drivers of why private equities become so compelling. With the hospital and the health system, you don't have that second bite, right? Um, they typically end up in some sort of a right of first offer, or right of first refusal um, upon retirement or at, upon some later date or event, um, but it's never going to um, realize the economic value that you know the private equity second bite at the apple does. So you... We, we touched a little bit on the role of insurers in driving this change. Uh, what, do you, what do you see happening with the insurers and how are they responding to these changes? Are they encouraging it? Are they discouraging it? Um, you know, because frankly, most healthcare providers view insurers as, as the enemy. I think they are definitely uh, sort of sitting back a bit and seeing how the evolution takes hold. Uh, I don't think they're pro-private equity. I don't think they're pro hospital and health system, I think the insurance constituency is pro-insurance constituency. If they are pro-private equity in one regard, it's that it's very difficult for even a large independent um, physician group or really any healthcare services enterprise um, to really operate within value-based care at scale. I mean, it's just, there's so many roadblocks and impediments. First of all, your data analytics and IT infrastructure has to be cutting edge. That's expensive, right? How do you finance that infrastructure? And beyond just the nuts and bolts of how do we get the infrastructure, there's a human capital element, right? You could have all the infrastructure. If you don't have administrators and and professionals that know how to operate within a value-based care environment, you can lose a lot of money very quickly. It's almost like managing a hedge fund in a way. I think the insurance companies are really gravitating towards 
um, private equity partnerships with physician practices and other healthcare entities where they're bringing that level of expertise, infrastructure and capital to really empower and position these entities to be relevant in value-based care. But let's be clear, insurers are also blurring the lines between insurance and provider. They're, they're mm. starting to enter the market themselves. Totally. A lot of activity in the, in the primary care market at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it used A lot to of be, ver- vertical integration. Yeah, yeah. It, it used to be the lines were, were pretty clear. They're pretty and gray these days. They're, they're very gray right now. And I mean, we, we can look at CVS yep. and where they are and, you know, what are they? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not a pharmacy. Right. You know, they're not an insurer and they're not a medical provider. Um, right. They are all three. That's right. Even looking at an organization like Amazon, yeah. right? And, and how they've really thought about, look, Amazon isn't going to enter a segment of the U.S. economy unless there's a really compelling market opportunity. So that, that, that box is checked with healthcare. Now, I think there was a little bit of naivete a few years back when they thought, well, we can just attack healthcare the same way we've attacked every other industry, uh, you know, uh, that we've had success in. And, and I think they've realized, wow, it's, it's really complicated <laughs> and really challenging. Uh, but you'll see more and more non-traditional market entrants over the next 10 years. Without a doubt. And are those models forcing consolidation and scale, or uh, is that just sort of a natural outgrowth of, of how the market is right now? I think without a doubt, it's forcing it. It's forcing consolidation. Um, uh, there, there's no way to get the economies of scale uh, in an industry as fragmented as healthcare, and in particular, healthcare services, right? Um, by definition, you know, for example, to be relevant in, in population health and, and value-based care, what are the ingredients? Size, scale, and market indispensability, right? You need attributable lives, right, in order to have the portfolio uh, to be relevant and actually make money in value-based care. That inevitably, and that's one element that's driving consolidation, right? And we'll see more and more of that over the next decade. So how are you seeing COVID uh impact things at this point? Yeah, it's been a fascinating dynamic. COVID has really, um, if anything, uh, forced independent healthcare providers to do a lot of soul searching. Um, I can't tell you the number of groups, physician groups in particular, that we met with, have spoken to, um, and have, have ha- we've had conversations that, the, and they've ultimately said, you know, uh, we really appreciate your insights, but we're fiercely independent. Uh, we don't necessarily need or want to do anything. Um, having been ravaged by COVID as an independent provider of healthcare services, those are the groups that are saying, what are our strategic alternatives and how does a potential partnership with the hospital, with a strategic aggregator or private equity, how will that help ensure our long-term sustainability? Because that's what, what it really comes down to. I think what COVID did was it really addressed and, and, and cut at the heart of the weaknesses inherently uh, of an independent provider of healthcare services, right? How do you maintain your workforce? How do you maintain continuity of services? How do you finance your day-to-day operations when a global pandemic effectuates your revenue stream, right? And how can you sustain that over, over a prolonged period of time? Very difficult. A lot of groups didn't make it. And, and the stronger groups you know, really felt the pain and came out of that, you know, global pandemic in a much weaker, 
you know, state as, as an organization. So I, I think, you know, COVID was a glaring example of all the things we talk about in terms of what are the black swan events that you're not even thinking about, but could systematically change the practice of medicine and the viability of your practice. So if I've got a group, I don't know, let's say it's a specialty group, I've got uh, I'm 15 providers and I pick up the phone and I say, hey, Hector, what do I need to do? You know, the world is changing. I'm a physician. You know, I'm not a business person. You know, what should I do to get ready? What mm-hmm. do you tell them? I answer their question with a question <laughs> most of the time. And the question is, well, what are your goals? What are your objectives? What are the challenges that you foresee in the immediate intermediate term? What are the differentiating factors that may, that have driven the success of your practice to date as an independent going concern? So, you know, the first thing that we encourage all of our clients to do, and it's difficult because it's usually very hard and you, they usually don't like what they what they see. But we encourage them to say, take a really long, hard look in the mirror as an organization and be real with yourselves to say, what do we do well? What are the things that we could we do okay, but we could improve a lot. And what are the things that are really putting pressure on our sustainability over the longer term? When they're able to do that, a lot of them come to the realization is, you know, we're good at one thing, practicing very high quality medicine. We would love to have every other aspect and feature of our enterprise be at that highest level as, as our practice of medicine is. How do we do that? Right. And, and some, sometimes they can do that independently. Right. Sometimes it's a matter of optimizing your administrative personnel, um, beefing up your, your infrastructure and back office and all the things that go into the day to day operation of, of the enterprise. But sometimes it's very challenging. You know, you talked about the hypothetical 15 provider practice. You know, if they're challenged, what, what are the challenges for the three man or woman group in that market, in that specialty? I mean, it's, it's just really, really challenging, right? I think some people labor under the impression that, gee, um, if we buy an EMR mm-hmm. and, you know, get a little IT capability, we're good to enter this new world. Do you think that's accurate? I mean, to me, one of the, one of the key components of a lot of the value-based relationships is care coordination, care management, um, you know, developing protocols and data so you know exactly how to treat your patients. Yeah. And you're responsible for them even after they leave your office. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are you seeing around that? I'm seeing, frankly, uh, that there is an inverse relationship between um, what that practice believes they have in terms of capabilities and what they actually have in terms of capabilities. Meaning, uh, when we sit down with a, a potential client or, or a new client and say, okay, tell us about your financial reporting and controls. Oh, we have an EMR. Everything's synced up. Our chief administrative officer will get you all the information. Well, that's great. We exit that meeting and we say, okay, so do you have site level financial reporting and controls? And can you dissect uh, clinical performance metrics and KPIs by provider, by subspecialty? And they're like, um, we can't even get the clinics to talk to each other. We don't even know. I can't even get you site level KPIs, let alone quarterly or annual financial statements by provider or by site. It, there's a massive chasm between 
what a lot of the providers believe they have in terms of expertise and capabilities. And it's not so much on the capabilities, it's on the expertise, right? On the human capital side versus what they actually have in day-to-day -day sort of operational aspect. A very huge disconnect there. So how do you approach that? I mean, a lot of them, if they think they're great, you know, how do you get them to see the world? Do you change their view or do you just... The worst thing is for that enterprise to continue on this line of thinking of we're great, we're at the cutting edge, and we need nothing in the way of optimization. That is a really, really bad place to be. Um, you know, most of the time, it's really positive for them to come to the realization of, wait a minute, we're not as sophisticated or we're not, quote, as good as we thought, because that helps inform those goals and objectives. I know it's sort of a weird dynamic to say finding all these deficiencies is a good thing. It is because the worst thing would be to not acknowledge or even realize that those, that those deficiencies are there. And is the ultimate goal here to take full risk, take full cap? It is eventually. But so, it's been, isn't that, hasn't that been the goal for the last 50 years? <laughs> well, it has, and there have been some spectacular failures. Failures, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'm sort of waiting for the next wave of failures, to be mm -hmm. honest, just based on, on my observations. Yeah. Um, but again, this draws us back to the insurance industry. If I take full risk as a provider, who needs insurers? Exactly, exactly. I mean, if I develop the capabilities you're talking about, the data analytics, the back office. You become the managed care entity right? in many ways. And I think that's it's a fascinating dynamic from the insurer's side because they want value-based care, but only up to a certain point, right? It's like, it's like yeah, this is great. It's going to save and it's going to fix the healthcare system and it's going to make the patient experience better. It's going to make access to care better. It's going to make outcomes better. It's going to drive costs down. But we don't want to lose market share to the entities that are doing it at scale eventually if they can take that full risk, right? So there's sort of a push and a pull there. Oh, in a big way. Uh, but they have two things. One is they have that insurance license, which mm -hmm. requires some pretty big reserves. Correct. The second is they've got the broker relationships, the dark secret in healthcare that that's a black box. It is. And how those By design. I, how they're rewarded and how they're incentivized definitely impacts how healthcare is delivered in this country and no one looks at that no one because it's opaque by design well it's not regulated exactly in the slightest uh and even the antitrust side of the insurance industry isn't regulated so there's very little line of sight for that correct um where, what do you see 22 holding for everyone in healthcare you know it's been fascinating the year has begun um at such an incredible rate of um, consolidation and, and, and market activity from a mergers and acquisitions perspective that, you know, we usually see a little bit of an air pocket during the holidays and things slow a little bit down. Then folks are getting sort of back into the, the mix of things in early January and come February, uh, things are sort of running at the same clip they were before we went into the, the holiday season. This year, we never saw a break in the action. The only thing we saw was sort of an intensification of the velocity and volume of deal-making. We foresee that the level and pacing of deal-making in the first half of this year will probably intensify to levels that perhaps we haven't seen in a very long time. But we do foresee that 
there are a number of variables that could really, really effectuate a slowdown. And those variables are at play, you know, in the third and fourth quarter. And what sectors do you think you're expecting the most change? Either increase in volume or, or decrease? I think there'll be a potential slowdown uh, within physician practice management across both single specialty and multi-specialty physician groups. We all know the biggest driver of volume of activity and velocity of activity has been private equity. Private equity is really driven by the capital market environment. Private equity funds structure their deals whereby it's like mortgaging a house, right? They'll put in their own money, but they'll really raise the majority of the financing for the transaction by taking out debt, right? And their ability to actually consummate the transaction at all is driven by what is the cost of capital of that debt. Conversely, I think that the slowdown in private equity investment activity this year creates a lot of opportunities for the other constituents and players in the M&A environment, meaning I think it's going to create more opportunities for the uh, forward-thinking health systems that are much more well-capitalized than the smaller, independent, community-based health systems, whereby you know the slowdown in po- private equity will create effectively an air pocket for them to have a, a more relevant seat at the table in having these discussions with those provider-based entities. So whereas a lot of them put their activity on pause due to COVID, they were, they were feeling in the bottom line, you're expecting Q3, Q4, a lot more activity out of the systems. And maybe, um, I assume some of the PE players who are there and fully funded right now, they're going to keep going. For sure. You, are, are you really talking about the potential for new entrants and some of the smaller players kind of dropping off? And, and then are you looking at, maybe the collapse of some existing players? Yeah, not, not necessarily the collapse. I mean, the, the, the fascinating difference between this hyper-consolidating market environment relative to the one that we saw in the late 90s, the level of sophistication now of all parties is like four or five standard deviations to the right. Uh, you know, the, the level of sophistication and acuity of knowledge of investors in healthcare is such that, you know, they've underwritten a lot of the risk through the structure of their deals. And, and, and they're smart enough to know what they don't know. And, and a lot of the good ones have brought in industry advisors to either sit on the boards of the companies they've invested in or help them as operating partners. So um, any last thoughts for the audience? The only constant in our industry, which is fascinating, is change. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're forward thinking, if you're true uh, to the, the values and the elements that make you uh, what you are as a healthcare provider, um, being thoughtful and realistic with who and what you are today and what you want to be tomorrow, I think that really lends itself to a much more intellectually honest discussion about what are the potential strategic alternatives before us and how should we be thinking about those really to effectuate long-term sustainability of our enterprise. Well, that's great. Well, Hector, thanks for appearing and uh, we'll do it again. Awesome. Thank you for having me.